Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're We're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, in the special Year in Review episode, we go back to the 10 most listened to podcasts of the year and pull out one of our favorite conversations from a segment on the show we call Start, Sub, or Sit. This segment, where each coach or player ranks which given topic they choose to start, bring off the bench, or ban to the bench, always leads down interesting and thought-provoking paths. And these are some of our favorites from the most listened to episodes of the year. As 2021 comes to a close, we want to thank all of the coaches and players who have listened, shared, or engaged with the podcast, newsletter, Twitter, and YouTube videos, or become members of SG Plus in 2021. Your support helps us continue to explore and highlight a profession and a game we all love. Thank you again, and we'll see you in 2022. To lead things off, an episode just outside the top 10 this year, with Southeast Melbourne head coach Simon Mitchell's smoky bar reference about eye contact between post players just had to be included. So coach, start, sub, sit on a post catch. These are actions for your four man, your, your preference of actions on a post catch. So you enter it to your five <laughs> and we, we finally give him the ball here, maybe on a post catch, but enter to the five, start, sub, sit other actions with your four. So having him dive to the opposite dunker spot, having him flare or set some sort of screen on the perimeter or having him space. I love weak side action when the ball gets in the post. And that's kind of a, a trait of Australian basketball. You watch the NBA, the ball goes into the five man in the post. And there's a lot of standing around, reading newspapers, uh, putting your feet up <laughs> on that weak side. I mean, there's so much yeah. more space, I guess, as well. And the, the five men are so talented that it's a little bit different game in Australia. So I love the weak side action. So I'm going to go with the, the four man diving to start with and then okay. spacing out the opposite three point corner. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, what were my other ones? There's, there's just the spacer. He's going to be off. He's going to be okay. out of there. What was the second one? A flare or, uh, you know, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Actually, let me put him in as the starter. We'll get the diver as the, the off the bench and, and, and the guy standing around just sort of uh, reading the paper. He, he can find something else to okay. do. <laughs> Coach, the dive, uh, which is now coming off the bench for you, the timing on it, when do you want him diving? Do you want him to wait and see if, the, if you dump it to the five, have him go right away? Or what's the, the thought on the dive? I think a little bit of it's how you're being defended on that one. Okay. You know, if you've got a four man who can shoot the ball, it may start with a little bit of a getting down, ready to catch and shoot stance, get that defender to close out and then go. If he's right up on you, you might want to chuck him a little bit, dive. So I feel like one thing you need to do, though, is when that ball goes into the post is that you almost want to get eye contact with that five-man before you make a move, unless it's very, very orchestrated and well rehearsed, just so that, uh, again, it'll minimise the turnovers if you kind of can see each other. I always call it the smoky bar, which no longer exists in Australia since they've stopped people smoking in bars 20 years ago, which is great. But there's the old smoky bar, you know, you sort of you see someone, you catch someone's eye and it's sort of like there's some sort of communication there. Yeah, I like to see a little bit of smoky bar action between the five and four or anybody on the perimeter for that matter. Again, there's a communication there with eye contact that you have that will limit turnovers and create scoring opportunities. Up next, coming in at number 10 on the year, episode 43 with St. Thomas Aquinas head coach Tobin Anderson and our conversation about what it takes to win on the road. Okay, coach, start sub sit in terms of getting a big road win, but from an offensive standpoint, something you need to do offensively to win on the road, win the assist battle or reach a certain number of assists, win the free throw margin or win the points in the paint. That's a good one. You know, we're, we're funny. We've had a lot of success, and I think we've lost the free throw battle because we probably because we press, we foul quite a bit. We've, yeah. We lose every free throw margin possible. So I'm going to say I'm going to put that. I think it's important. I think it's it kind of um, the points in the paint sometimes dictates your free throws, but we also tend to foul sometimes. So I'm going to sit the free throw margin. I think points of the paint is huge. I think points of the paint is paramount. That's like the biggest thing for us is be able to get the ball inside. And I think 
if you get the ball in the paint and still get your good threes off of that, that's important. And then, you know, assists, I think assists are, I, I don't, for some reason, we pay a lot of attention to turnovers, a lot of attention because it's turnovers for us to how we play. Mm-hmm. We were great this year. Assists, we were like top five in the country, but I haven't put a whole lot of stock in that. We drive the ball a lot. We're a penetration motion team. So there are times we don't have a ton of assists and still play great offensively. But I do think assists do tend to, to lead to, how, are you sharing the ball? So I'm going to start the points of the paint. I'm going to uh, sub in the assists. And then uh, in the free throw margin, if you look at our stats, we give up a lot of points on free throws. And there's times we'll come into halftime. And if we, we have like four personal fouls, our guys will say, well, that's great. We didn't foul too much. I'm like, yeah, we, we probably didn't play very well because we're not being aggressive enough. So I think sometimes we have to foul to create that aggressive mindset. So I'm not, I'm not married to the free throw thing as much. Can I put a fourth one in there? Please. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> offensive rebounds. I think if you're going to win on the road, win in a, in a big game, you got to go get offensive. I, I think offensive rebounds is huge. And I may, you know, I guess I've been listening to your podcast. I may send all five guys next year. I'm telling you, I'm, like I told you, I'm, I'm getting crazy as I get older. I may just <laughs> the whole world. We anyway, said this, we're, we're all going to go. Yeah. We're all going to go. Because I think get the coaches out yeah. there. Yeah. Like I, I just think, like, let's, let's, let's have some fun. I heard Kelvin Sampson speak one time and he just said he, he went on a foreign trip, sent, sent all five guys the offensive boards. So I'm like, I'd be interested to know what would happen if we could do that. You know, now it depends on personnel, but I, I think getting offensive rebounds is a backbreaker. We call them daggers, the offensive rebound into a three. Yeah. I mean, those are just, those yeah. are your best threes you get sometimes. So I, I think I'm going to, Offensive rebound is the, is the MVP, and then the rest of them can get okay, go. Okay, all right. From there, Fair right? Enough. Coach, with those dagger, those offensive rebound three-pointers, are you teaching anything? Are you telling your guys, hey, if we get an offensive rebound, run to the corners? Or so your rebounders know maybe where to look for those dagger threes? We basically tell the offensive rebounders, if you don't have an immediate putback, you're looking out. And then yeah, we okay. don't always really say spots, but like we always send two guys back. Those guys on the offensive board are hitting right to the three. And we're going okay. right to three. And find the ball. It's a deep corner rebound. They'll go to the corners. We just yeah. find an open spot. And we hit a dagger. The whole bench. We love the daggers. The daggers are like, that's like the whole bench goes crazy. And we, everybody's yelling dagger. So it's kind of like what you emphasize. It's a lot of fun. So like you know, dagger, dagger, <laughs> dagger. So we, we make it a fun thing. And it's like, it's like we scored. Yeah. It's almost like it's a six point play. Sometimes it's like such a huge, such a backbreaker offensive board, boom, kick out for a dagger. And then we're going nuts. You know, yeah. it's, it's like a free throw. rebound. We get, we get a free throw rebound. We call it a bobcat. And we go crazy. My wife, she's like, man, I love Bob. She doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. She <laughs> like, we get a free throw rebound and we score a Bobcat. Like the whole sideline is going crazy. Bobcat, Bobcat. I don't know what Bobcat is, but we, uh, <laughs> that's good. Those things are, I love, I love those things. <laughs> that's good. Is, is there a reason why it's called Bobcat? Yep. The guy, the coach at Quinnipiac, Sean Doherty, who's a good friend of mine, he taught us how to rebound off free throws. We do a little thing and you know, no one else does it, which is funny. They'll probably start doing it when they hear the podcast, but like we do a little playoff. You know, you probably see it before we, we screen down and come across over the top. We probably yeah. get, I don't know, let's say 25 per year. But if you get one in a big spot, you know, and especially we haven't always been a great free throw shooting team, but if you don't miss a free throw, now you get an offensive, you know, get, you get a Bobcat, you get a Bobcat yeah. dagger, that should be like, that should be like 10 points. You get, you get all the your game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. But those, yeah, we, we do that all the time. And like, if our guys don't Bobcat, if they don't make that move on the offensive rebound, we'll run a 17 the next day. It's like, you have to go every, you have to Bobcat every time. If you don't do it, we're going to run a 17 because that's so important for us. And like, you know, a minute to go and it's a one-on-one and Hey, if we miss one, but we get a Bobcat, we get two. That's the game right there. So yeah, those are yeah. big for us. Coach, yeah. can I follow up on the Bobcat too? I'd like to know, well, I don't want you to give away your secrets too much, but are you giving those guys, are they Xing in front of each other and coming around or are they spinning off? Do you make a call at the time? Do you have different options for them to do the Bobcat stuff? We have an assistant who calls the guy's names. One guy's a diver. One guy's the, is the guy who goes over the top. Yeah. So we call out the guy's name. Depending, you know, obviously the guy, the diver is going to be the tough guy, the physical guy who wants a little bit of contact. He's basically going to, come across and take guys out. There's a certain technique we teach with that guy who's looping behind. One guy's diving, the other guy's looping behind. And we're trying to like get to the front of the rim. That's, that's a putback dunk if you yeah. can, you know? Yeah. So we have an assistant coach call the guy's name out. And after, after a certain point, they kind of know who's, you know, it's like the, the tough guy is going to dive and the, and the, yeah. the finesse guy is going to loop, right? <laughs> and there's times we look at the free throw line and be like two finesse guys in there. Like, no, no, get it, get out of it. Get, get it, get it. <laughs> then somebody else in there. I tell you what, that has been, I told us to Sean and Sean's a good friend of mine. Like that's been one of the most important things that we've done the last five years to win us games is that free throw offensive rebound. It's been, I cannot tell you the number of big baskets we've got off of that action. Cause like at the end of the day, what happens at a free throw in the game, coach is calling out, Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to run this play. We're going to, guys are not as engaged in the games on free throw box outs yep. and you can steal one. That's a back. Yep. That's a game. At number nine, 
episode number 32 with former Dallas Maverick and now Indiana Pacer assistant coach Jenny Busick on balancing analytics and the human element. Okay, start, sub, or sit. These are different analytical stats that are most important to you. So start, sub, or sit, player efficiency rating, adjusted plus minus, or points per possession, PPP. For an individual player? Individual player, yes. I'd probably say adjusted plus minus is my starter. Player efficiency is my sub. And then uh, points per possession would be, he would be sitting. Is he like buried sitting or is he like barely sitting? No, okay. No, he's not. But, you know, this is always, this is a, this is a tricky part to me of, of the analytics is when you're trying to assess a player's value to a team. This one's tricky for me as a coach, just in general. This is not such a linear sport like baseball. And I know we, we're trying to make it as much so, especially with personnel decisions. And I get that. I get that. But after 20-something years of making a lot of decisions in terms of roster, I've been in a lot of positions. Like in WNBA, we do the draft. We don't have a staff that analyzes the draft. We don't have an international scout. We are the ones doing free agency trades and the draft. And over the years, you know, we incorporate a lot of analytics into that. And obviously in the NBA, it's loaded with the analytics. My best decisions by far have come without it. And so that's maybe just my experience. And I'm not trying to negate it when it comes to like players value, but the best scouts, in my opinion, and when I've gotten it right, I've gotten it wrong a lot, but is when I'm able to assess a player that has the it factor. Give you an example that you know right now that's very relevant to our team, Jalen Brunson. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where his numbers were on all this stuff, honestly, but he's just, he wins. He's a winner. He may not have the longest arms or the greatest vertical or even the greatest shooting percentage at certain times of his career and stuff like that. But I don't know where he is on those three stats that we just talked about. But the kid, now man, always wins and he always rises in the clutch and now he's as he's adjusting to the nba you're seeing what a valuable clutch player he is in the nba is he the most talented guy on the floor no but he has this it factor and i've had that experience in the wnba as well with players that i'm sure wouldn't have graded out all that well but they were such elite teammates and warriors and soldiers and keeping the locker room right They just have this it factor that I just don't feel like you can put a number on that is always going to be a catalyst to your team winning. And a player like that makes a Sue Bird better. A player like that makes a Sue Bird more of a champion. And Sue's going to get all the glory. But a Tanisha Wright, who you won't even know, was a player that was really like the one that was the catalyst to a lot of those championships and that championship culture that help her have the numbers, help Sue have the numbers that she has, if I'm making sense. So yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm partial to the intangibles is what I'm saying. I'm partial to the yeah. intangibles. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to accept that it's just totally measurable in itself in an isolated equation. So yeah, let me hear that at some point and I'll factor it in, but let me watch without that for a long period of time and get a feel for this player. Coach, if I were to ask you those same stats and you, you asked me the difference, is it a player or a team? Does that change your opinion all on the use of those stats? If you're saying you're looking at it more from an overall team perspective rather than an individual player perspective? Probably not so much. I mean, again, I think the, the tricky part about the analytics now, and this is something I'm, I'm open-minded about it, but I'm witnessing as well, is that things that are so very black and white numerically, can take a toll on the soul of a player or a team. And so you have to find some element of humanness to all of this because what might be clearly right in the numbers can mess with the psyche of a player or a team. And so that's where I think these coaches, these head coaches in the NBA that are really going to separate themselves are going to be the ones that are able to assimilate the information and the data and the numbers while not compromising the soul 
of an athlete or a team because at the end of the day, they're human. A bit of a curveball at number eight, but we tried out a brand new game called Over or Under with Arkansas Razorback head coach Eric Musselman, a game he was not prepared for. I was all ready for Spark Subset. <laughs> Despite the game change on our end, Coach Musselman was fantastic in giving his thoughts on rotation sizes and keeping bench players engaged. All right, Coach. Uh, my over under the most realistic and successful rotation on your team over under seven and a half player rotation. I think it depends on your team. I really do. At Nevada, I played six and a half guys. That was my rotation. Yeah. In the old G League, D League, whatever you want to call it, the CBA, as a minor league coach, we had a 10 man roster. I played all 10 guys 24 minutes in our 48 minute game. Because I thought like everybody wanted to get called up. I understood the deal. And my job was to, to develop players and win games and try to sell buildings out as a minor league coach. But I felt like obligated to play everybody as many minutes as I potentially could. And then that would obviously vary, you know, in the fourth quarter. You know, last year at Arkansas, we had a little bit bigger rotation. We played about eight and a half. And this year we end up actually could play nine or 10. So I really think it depends Pat on your team. Okay. And I think it depends on the level too. I'm very bothered by high school coaches, especially JV coaches that play five or six guys. Like, are you freaking kidding me? Your job is to develop players. The only way to develop is put them in the damn game. And so high school coaches that are playing, you know, six guys, I don't really buy that. I think you need your underclassmen kids to play a little bit. You know, one of the things that we brought, you know, in the NBA, Ty usually goes to the rookie unless you're a playoff team. So if you have a six-year vet or you have a, a first-round draft pick and it's a tie talent-wise and impact, the, the rookie's winning. He was a first-round draft pick. Yeah. Then I get to college and I hear everybody say, well, Ty should go to the upperclassman because he's been here for three years. Well, no, Ty should go to the younger player because he's going to be here for three more years. <laughs> right. And so... <laughs> You know, at Nevada, everyone talks about our transfers, but at Nevada, Lindsey Drew and Cam Oliver, I made a decision that those two freshmen were going to play a lot of minutes in our first year so that it would help us in year two. I think your rotation, it really depends on who's on your roster. I'm really comfortable playing six or seven guys because I think they can play through their mistakes. And I think that there's an incredible bond when you have a small rotation. And I've had this conversation with Tom Thibodeau because we've worked together. Tom obviously has had a really small rotation throughout much of his career. And we've talked about the benefits of that. Your guys become more durable. They become more tough. They understand their roles explicitly. When you play more players, it becomes a little bit more convoluted and a little bit more complicated. Coach, looking at, you brought up a, an interesting point for me, looking at minutes you're giving players. Are you thinking, okay, when I sub one in, I got to give him this many minutes so he comes into the game so he can have a chance to contribute? And the same thing that at the end of the game, it's like, okay, well, he only played nine minutes. Like, do, what can I realistically expect that he's going to give us? So we got to either get him maybe less minutes and go with someone else or give him more minutes so he can contribute. The word giving minutes, I think, has got to be out of, yeah. you know, kind of got to be out of a head coach's vocabulary. But I think if you clearly, like I have no problem. We were talking about this the other night at dinner with our staff. I put a walk on in a game at Nevada named David Cunningham. He had not played the whole game. Uh, it was a really big game against Utah State. And one of the best players in the Mountain West was a player at the time named Sam Merrill. Mm -hmm. I put a walk on in at the end of the game. We needed one stop. There was a timeout and I put David Cunningham and I assigned him to guard Sam Merrill, maybe arguably the best player in the Mountain West. And I put him in, I put a walk on in who maybe played 28 minutes the whole year for us. And I had him guard Sam Merrill because I thought that he could guard him, do exactly what I wanted, send Sam Merrill in the direction I wanted him sent, and do it without fouling. You know what? We had built David Cunningham up all year where he felt like he might have a role sometime during the course of the year, that he would be a no-foul, follow-the-game-plan type player. So I think that you can build confidence up. you got to build confidence up in every single player 
whether they played the whole game or not, that you could put him in in the late game. Same thing with the guy. Somebody might be sitting there all game. We had another walk on Charlie Tooley that I put in the game late because he was a three-point threat, and he hadn't played the whole game. And so I think that you can do that stuff with guys. And then I also think it puts a predicament on the opponent as well when they haven't seen a guy or don't have a real true feel for a player. Coach, when you have a tight rotation of seven, what are your conversations like with the eighth, ninth, tenth guy who they know they're close, but they're not really getting many minutes? And then also maybe the guys more at the end of the bench who have maybe no shot of getting in to keep them motivated and feeling like they're a part of the group and contributing. Yeah, Dan, that's an awesome question. And so when we were doing the six and a half rotation at Nevada, I had four sit outs for four straight years. So as I observed colleges, different programs, I often wondered why they had a ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th men, 13th sitting and doing nothing. And so I, I had a strategic plan that I wanted four guys sitting out every year because I felt like eight guys was enough. I needed the other bodies for practice, but I only needed really eight or nine guys for the games because I knew that I could get by. Look, in the NBA, you're used to playing 82 games. You're used to traveling. You're used to an eight-minute longer game. I laugh at the stuff about you have to have depth. You don't have to have depth in college. I can promise you that. Does it help? Yeah, certainly it helps. Uh, But you also got to worry about your locker room. The more good players you have, the more dilemmas you have, the more egos you could have, the more chemistry locker room interruptions you can have. And so I've always felt the worst thing to do is walk into a locker room after a win and guys aren't happy. That's the work. Then you got to, you know, you got to go home. You got to turn on a West coast game. You got to worry about this guy's not happy about his role. You've got to clearly define what's going on and you've got to tell guys, you know, it's the same thing with the baseball team. Like sometimes a guy's going to hit against left-handed pitcher sometimes, but you got to let the player know so you don't catch him off guard. Yeah. And so I think clear communication becomes extremely important when you're talking about rotation and bench players. It doesn't mean they're going to accept it, but certainly through clear and concise communications, the best way and uncomfortable conversations and having those conversations early, but probably the most important thing the players know. So you've got to put them in competitive situations throughout your training camp or throughout your off season so that the players know, hey, this is the pecking order. This is our go-to player because he's proven it. This is our ball security guy because he's proven it. This is our sixth man. We all know it. So that it's not coming from the coach. It's the players. It's interesting because we had a change in our starting lineup and a couple players came to me. Coach, we all know like this dude's got to come in the starting lineup, man. Now's the time to make the move. And the players know. They understand better than coaches do. At number seven, one of the more entertaining episodes of the year with Bayern Munich head coach Andrea Trincari, in which he also gave us one of our biggest compliments. Questions were not boring. <laughs> it's important. You never know. <laughs> yes, you never that's know. Right. Believe me, you never know. <laughs> Joking aside, Coach Trincari gave a terrific answer to this start sub sit question about gaining trust with players. This first topic is on building trust with your players. So start, sub, or sit, these three different scenarios. First one would be small pre or post-practice interactions on the floor, maybe a minute or two before practice or after. The second Option is an official sit-down meeting in your office, bring a player in, sit and talk. Or the third option is something off the court, say sharing a meal together, or I know you like to cook. So something outside of basketball to build trust. I cannot answer to you because there are players that need to go in the office. There are players that I call at my place and I cook a very good Italian dinner with a very good bottle of wine and maybe even a cigar. There are players that I try to don't overwhelmed with my request with quick chat before, maybe with three, five clips or after the practice. So all three works perfectly. It depends on who you have in front. There are players that are seeking attention, like there are women that are seeking attention, there are men that are seeking attention, that are relatives that are seeking attention. It's not a, a, a sin, 
is part of the life. So when you have a player that is seeking attention, if you do this informal, maybe even at your home, he will feel, ah, he's opening the door of his house. And I do open to my players. I do this very often and I don't see anything wrong that can happen. Some of them will feel great. Some of them will be a little, you know, one trust or why is calling me here? What, what, what? Okay. But some players just want to have a basketball relation and want to be guided in basketball. So a quick chat, one minute, 30 seconds, five minutes before the practice with, so I make you this example, you know, I always come to the practice and I pick two, three players and I ask them players that I'm trying to develop and ask him, what is your goal for today? Oh, coach, to have a good practice. I said, mm, not enough. This is goal for everybody. What is your personal goal? Mm, to go hard. And I say, oh, this is too general. Again, everybody wants to go hard. And then no more idea, no more things to say. So I said, you have to have a purpose every day. Otherwise, you are not going to explore all your potential. And he's looking at me, staring at me like a deer, you know, with big eyes. I said, your purpose is maybe today you come and you make all passes on pick and roll with the left hand because maybe next team is going to force you to the left. I'm throwing things on the table. Or maybe you want to work on your step back and you shape your offense through this. I don't say you take 50 step backs, but you build and it's the purpose. And, you know, they, ah, yes, 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 yes. From that, you have first to teach them how to have a purpose. Some other players that are need, you know, when they're fucking the scoreboard, okay, <laughs> you can call them. And they always listen, what do you want to do? Are we going to go to the war the whole season? What do you want to do? I don't believe anymore in the system where you go to the player and say, we do like this because I said it that we have to do like this. At my age, when my father was saying to me something, I will never taking consideration how he was saying the things, I will focus only on what he's saying. Now, if you don't deliver the message in the way the person in front of you is expecting you to deliver the message, the message won't go through. It won't go through. So I like your, your game, but I, I do <laughs> all three things every day. You're not the first coach to start all the options. So yeah. don't worry. <laughs> it happens quite often. Okay. Coach, quickly, when you were talking about encouraging your players to set goals for practice. How are you dealing with mistakes and allowing them to happen versus when they're a detriment and getting on to them? If there is a categories of mistakes, the mistake that we are fighting, that I'm fighting very hard, is the mental mistakes. Mm -hmm. Unforced mistake or mistakes that are coming from poor concentration, poor focus, sloppy day, not having a target, just wanted to survive. I don't want my players to survive. I want my players to go and use their time. I always say to young players, today you had a bad practice. You know that this practice, you're never going to get it back in your life. You wasted one opportunity. Think how many opportunities in a career you will waste. So it's so important that they understand that the only way they have to get better is through practice and through doing things. So if a player makes five turnovers because he's trying to pass the ball with the left, I'm good with that. I will maybe be more demanding to the others to help him because if he doesn't pass the ball so good, we have to have be open better so we can play with his flaws. It's always a team game. It's not tennis. It's not forehand, backhand, smash. Right. So if a player has less in one area, somebody else can have more in that area. So I'm passing the ball slow with the left because my left hand is not good. So all the team should know that we have to be better in timing, better in getting open, setting better screens to give him more time. Like this, you encourage one player and you show that the whole team should care about him. It's a mental thing. So I just cannot stand mental mistakes. I am very bad with players that comes to practice and they just want to sweat. I don't give a damn if they just want to sweat. I want that their brain sweats. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want they are tired mentally after a bit because this is the only way to be better. Facing adversity and finding solution. This is the life. Coming in at number six, five-time gold medalist, 
four-time WNBA champion, two-time NCAA champion, and the WNBA's all-time assist leader, Sue Bird, on defending the middle pick and roll and triple switching. Moving along, Sue, start, sub, sit. You're defending the ball in a pick and roll. So in terms of what defense you would want to be playing, switch, hedge, or drop? So, okay, so this goes without saying, it depends who you're playing against, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goes without saying. But for me personally, what I like. Yeah, in terms of what makes your job easier. My job easier, okay. (laughs) I think hedging is probably the easiest for me because I'm getting a lot of help from that post player who's pushing that guard back. But obviously hedging causes some other issues depending on who you're playing against. So I'll start that because it's easier for me. Yeah. If we had ice in here, by the way, ice would be starting. That's the easiest. That's to me like the old, the best old lady defense ever. <laughs> I just got it. Oh, I just have to jump to the spot. Cool. And, oh, it's your fault if they go baseline. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there's subtleties in that though that that I yeah sure. Um, so sure. yeah, we'll go hedging, start, switching, sub, and that, that that's a close second. By the way, those could easily both start switching. If you ever watch me play, it's kind of a joke when we watch film back with my team, because when we hit the switch, we three player switch, sometimes four player switch. That's actually been in the WNBA for, I couldn't even like 15 plus years. It's, I feel like it's just entered the NBA in the last couple of years, but bouncing the, the shorter play out, keeping size at the rim, our team's in Seattle have been historically very good at that. And it's funny when you watch me though, cause I'm just like pointing like, okay, you go there, you take that, you go over there, blah, blah, blah. you know, I'm just constantly like <laughs> navigating the whole thing. Yeah. yeah like directing. I'm like, <laughs> um, so it's pretty funny, but yeah. I, so I love switching for that reason because I think it messes teams up and it's a way to keep the pick and roll at bay, giving no advantage in that way. But when you bounce the, the smaller players out, you still keep that size of the rim and it takes away that advantage of well. And then the drop, you know, that requires the guard. It puts a lot of pressure on that guard. You got to get over that thing. Right. You know, you're not going under if you're guarding a shooter. So you got to get over in this league. It's really tough, but you know, I know it encourages the long two, which is fine. So if a coach told me like, listen, we're just encouraging whoever it is to shoot long two. So do this. I'm down to do it. On the switch and bounce out. Are you staying at all with the role? Are you trying to go over, under, or are you more like just kind of veering off immediately? I've had to have this conversation with some coaches I've played for. And so I think it's fool's gold a little bit to tell me in this case to try to jam the roller. I think all that does is suck you in. This is the deal. We're talking about someone like myself. I'm five, nine, I weigh 145 pounds. And you're trying to tell me to jam Liz Cambage a six, seven player. Yeah. Like, first of all, she doesn't feel it. I'm not stopping her. All I'm going to do is get mm. myself stuck in a way where I can't get out to a shooter. I do think there's like a happy medium between jamming and not hitting at all. So it's almost just like a hit and bounce. Mm-hmm. You got to give them a little something. So they think you're there, but then you're out. And that's where, you know, the trust from a, a team standpoint has to be there because I think a lot of players, when they do jam and they get stuck, it's because they're nervous. The other post player who should be, you know, bumping you out isn't there yet. And so many times on film, we'll go back and, you know, a player will have jammed and stayed and the post player was there to bump them out. They just didn't see it, didn't know the trust wasn't there. So some of it comes with trust and working on it. But once you have it, I barely, I mean, I'm literally just like tap and I'm out. I'm going to find a shooter because that's probably who I'm closing out on. And Sue, in the triple switch, not giving anything specific from what you guys do, but is it mostly coming from the two-player side that the, the triple switch is coming from? So the bottom tag is switching you out? It depends. Okay. Things are getting craftier with where they basically hide people, you know, and we'll do the same thing. If Actually, we can stick with the same example. So if we've got a high pick and roll and a shooter in that one man eye, that's a great play to run if teams are switching. Because the person who would bounce the guard out is now, like if I'm going towards the left, they're on that left strong side. So if they come Mm -hmm. in, I can hit that player easy. Teams are getting more strategic with where they hide, you know, that other post player. Because usually for us, it's a post player that's going to try to get in there to get the player out. Sure. So it just depends. But if you wanted to do like traditional, like, and think of it in like the horns scenario. So you've got the horns, the player goes off, you know, the right side, there's a switch. The post player who's on that left elbow, they will bump out the guard who then comes to the popping post. That's kind of like, everybody does that. So I'm not telling you anything. Sure. (laughs) At number five, from one of our personal favorite episodes of the year with Telecom Bond head coach, Promise Isalo. 
in which Pat almost created a brand new segment on the show. All right, coach. Our next start so shit. <laughs> start so <laughs> shit. Our next start so shit. Well, that one is clear. <laughs> we'll keep that in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, we won't edit that. <laughs> Once things got straightened out, Coach Isalo gave a great answer on what to do with non-shooters on the perimeter and how he likes to teach dribble handoffs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Our next start subset for you, coach, is you have a non-shooter on the perimeter. How do you like to use non-shooters on the perimeter? Screener, cutter, or to as a facilitator of a second action of DHO, get into a secondary pick and roll? Good question again. Man, these are tough. <laughs> <laughs> Did I already say it depends? See, we used to use guys as cutters a lot. And I think last season we trended towards the screener. But I do like to use those guys as also what we call like, or what I call, which my brother laughs at, connective tissue players. Because these players are all oftentimes, they are very developed in other parts of their game. Otherwise, they wouldn't be BBL players for a club like ours. So they might have very good anticipation skills, very good passing skills can be like this can be that the guy is an athlete you know and doesn't have this but has some you know other very good things but the difficulty of this question is that we would do all of these three and it would come out of different situations and it would be applied directly with the context of the opponent so whatever hurts them the most and what gives us the best chance of winning we're gonna do that and we're not like bound by doing it one way. I will tell you this, that you can figure out the order, but (laughs) we do start them as cutters. Then we probably go into the screening a little bit more. And then if we have a player like this, like I think a situation could be like as a facilitator. So let's say we have a five or a four. That's not a great shooter on the perimeter. Like we might still run a pick and pop for him, like against the downing coverage to get to the second side with a little bit of advantage and them not being able to play their primary defense on this side. But this is, I think, conceptually much later on in the process, you know? So probably very hard to say like in which order, like who I would start sub or sit, but that's the order we kind of like you build up. Yes. Introduce these. Yep. So hopefully no. that is enough. No, that's <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. You're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Coach, when you build up to maybe get in that secondary action, I'm always curious, is there a preference to go to a DHO to throw it and go to a handoff or to do like a in-between kind of toss and kind of screen them? You already know what I'm going to answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So in your ideal world, yeah. In my ideal world, he's going to pass it straight away and go hit the screen. Why? I'll explain it because it means that the receiver's defender is not in a deny position mm-hmm. and he's already late for it. This oftentimes happened in our other early offense, the ball screen continuation where we're going side to side with like wing ball screens and we have the big guys moving in the Klatskalitsa, I think, in <laughs> Serbo-Croatian. So they're moving up and down. And then we have one of the players is a cutter or a screener. And then there's two ball handlers. Some yeah. teams use three ball handlers. We've generally used, like, found ways to use two. So in that situation, if the player is not denied, which means that maybe we take the low man and put him in a really in a bind yeah. where he's in a really difficult decision because he has to help on the roll from the other side. But when the ball is swung forward, we might skip it directly. So that's why I would probably start with, we're not in that segment anymore, (laughs) but but that's what I would do. I would start that one. The pass I would start. So so I would go with that and sprint to it or Mm -hmm. even take the shot or reject it, et cetera. So that's something, you know, we would do. Then if for any reason, you know, we haven't generated a smaller advantage, like then we would initiate with the dribble. And the read is pretty easy. Like if you see a dribble at and you're being denied, you should look to get back door out of it. So it should only be dribbled when there's no direct pass, because this is clearly a slower solution. 
And we try to uh-huh. emphasize that speed kills in everything. And that uh, we use, we call a big camera that we have uh, like a three, not a 360 view that would be only reserved for owls, but as <laughs> like as much as possible that we're seeing as much as possible from the floor yeah. while we are catching it. So we're swinging. So the old, when I was playing, it was like catch, turn, and then make a decision. Like this is way too slow yeah. nowadays. So you have to make all of those three at the same time. And you have to have a body position that allows for you to first like observe what the defensive positioning is. And then you know where your offensive player is going to be based on the defensive positioning. So you can actually throw to a spot and then we will go from there. So I literally hate regular handoffs. I think they're terrible, you know, (laughs) so I would then try to pitch it and especially like going downhill and try to pitch it a little bit, like go towards the defender of the guy who's going to get the handoff. So pitch it to him and kind of try to nail him there and create a, like a situation where the offensive guy cannot go under coach. Why do you hate traditional handoffs? I just don't think they really produce a whole lot. Like the ones where you jump stop with the two feet and then you have the ball here on the side. I think that's one of the situations where we feel like we can get a lot of deflections, a lot of steals. And, and I think our concept against that is very good. And I know teams use it generally try to get downhill, which we look to deny, obviously not to get there, but I just think it's, like more of a like a east west than getting downhill out of that so it can put you in a good position for the rescreen because it will create initial separation between the ball handler's defender and the creator and the ball handler so that can be like its use but it has to be combined with something else in my opinion coming in at number four from episode 48 with new york nick head coach and 2021 nba coach of the year Tom Thibodeau. Coach Tibbs shares his insights on undertaught big men skills and the art of offensive rebounding. All right, coach. Our next start sub sit. This is a question in terms of undertaught big man skills. So teaching the DHO or teaching the handoff, offensive rebound techniques, or passing out of the post. Okay. I'd probably say the offensive rebounding. I think it's creeping back in now. I think people are sending more people to the board. They're getting, we're seeing the corner crash through the elbow. I think that that's become more common. We went through a stretch where teams were sending everyone back to get the defense set, but I think we're starting to see that more now. Yeah, passing out of the post probably next. I think particularly like with young players, I think that there's a tendency to fight the double team instead of getting rid of it quick where you have the advantage. You know, so, and make, having everyone understand, you know, you're exerting a lot of energy fighting pressure with pressure. So we can get great offense off of this. You know, sometimes you can beat a team with the pass. And so understanding, I think, and that comes oftentimes with experience. I think when you see some of the uh, more experienced players, they're baiting you into the double team to create that, you know, high percentage play where you swing, swing, and you created the long closed out, either you're getting the open three or dribble penetration and the second shot. So that's probably second. And then what was the third one? The dribble handoffs. I'm assuming that's a sit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like the dribble handoff, but you know, and I think that you can, and again, it, it's a different way of, you know, like putting pressure on people and we're seeing a lot of different things with inverted handoffs. And I think you can create really good offense off of that in, it's also a way, like if you don't have a skilled big to get to that action where if they're sagging off them to create open shots for your best shooters, you know, I think yeah. there's a lot of different things that you can do off that and it keeps it moving too. And It's a good counter, I think, against teams that are trying to keep the ball on one side of the floor. My first follow-up there is, why do you think offensive rebounding is coming back? I think that, you know, like when you really analyze where you get your threes from, and obviously the transition is a big part. I think the dribble penetration, you know, in the rim read and the spray out is another one. And now I think people are really emphasizing the, the kick out off of the offensive rebound. I think looking at it from an analytical standpoint, there's a thought process that it's another way to get threes. 
and take advantage. And you may have guys, someone that's really good at it. You know, when we were in Boston in, in 08, we had Kevin Garnett was more in the high post area, the top of the key. And, you know, that was probably his best area on the floor. It was when he shot from that area, even though it was frowned upon by some because analytics here, but that was, it was like a layup for him. You know, if he got that shot, you knew it was in. And Rondo oftentimes was down on the baseline and he was really good at going to the offensive board and also creating havoc from behind on defense rebounds, going and getting steals. And it also allowed us to pick up full court. So Kevin, they basically, we inverted the defensive transition. Kevin would get back mm -hmm. and Rondo would go up. And so if the strengths of your club are saying that, that's one thought process, but also that corner crash, I think what we see a lot is when the ball's shot, there's a tendency from the corners for guys just to, they turn, they stand, and they stare versus turn and check. And that's a free run to the rim, you know, through the elbow. And some guys are great at it. It's led to easy scores and, and kick out threes. So it's another way to get an easy bucket. In terms of maybe the teaching, the technique, is there anything you emphasize or, you know, is it more of an innate thing? This guy's just a great offensive rebounder. Like with Rondo, are you giving him any tips or is it just, he's just, he has a knack for it. I think it's instinctive, but I think the thought process of running through the, that elbow, like if you can get the guy to lose vision and, you know, there's a lot of guys, you know, especially in the NBA, they're not blocking out. Yeah. You know, so if you have a run to the rim, it's something you, you can take advantage of. Yeah. And the way to me, it's because of the volume of threes that are being taken where the offensive rebounds are going are a little bit longer. You know, they're oftentimes in that elbow area. So you see it all the time where, you know, guys are getting that long rebound and it's a quick kick out. And, it, you know, either it's the three there or the quick swing off the kick out. And that's, you know, the, you almost feel like that's an automatic. Into the top three now with former NBA head coach Stan Van Gundy, in which we ask him which type of zone offense he would prefer to run if he were to coach again at a lower level. Coach, we got one more start subset for you. So this will be one more where, uh, let's say you're going back to another level and you're not going to be playing man-to-man -man defense. You're going to stick with the zone defense for your main defense for the year. So start subset, 1-3-1 one, one zone, 2-3 zone, or a 3-2 zone. I'll sit the 3-2 zone, but again, I, that's probably just, and I'm thinking a conventional 3-2 where the back guys are having to cover the corners. And I'm going to do that because now one of my guards, whoever's playing it up in the thing, is going to have to sink on the weak side and be my weak side rebounder on one side of the floor. And, and I don't like that. And I also, because I've always had or at least in a time in the NBA, but really even in college. I mean, I always had big guys, like true bigs, and I don't really want them going to the corner if, if they have to. So I'm going to sit the 3-2. I'll start the 1-3-1. One, one. Hey. I'll give you two reasons again. And the first one I've used several times. I've coached that more. I played it a lot in college. I'm more familiar with it, I think. So I do a better job teaching it. But the other thing is, is I've just seen very few different approaches to the one, three, one. I mean, I pretty much know if I go one, three, one, what I'm going to see from the offense, you know, they're going to go two guys out front, two guys in the corners and a guy inside. And so I'm not going to see a lot of different stuff. Now, when I was in college, we actually attacked the one, three, one differently. We put our two guys, big guys on the blocks. We put our three man at the nail and played two guards out front. So that back guy who used to go in corner to corner, there's nobody in the our idea. And we, we also ran some set plays was we're just going to throw something at you that you haven't seen every day. And we're going to try to overpower you inside. And it was pretty effective, but for the most part, you know what you're going to see on the one, three, one. I think it allows you your best chance of trapping out of it or not. I think you can put good pressure on. I think it's a little bit easier to me anyway, to keep the offense on the perimeter more. Again, it maybe it wouldn't be if people ran two guys into the heart of the zone, you know, like you do against two, three or something where you put one guy down in the dunker and another guy coming to the high post or mid post, but you just don't see that much against one, three, one. And so it's pretty easy. I think to at least keep teams playing on the perimeter. So yeah, that's the way I'd go. I'd go one, three, one, I'd sub to two, three and try to be really compact. And 
I'd sit the three, two, but again, it's all personnel based too. So they used to play a little three, two zone, not a lot, but a little bit in Indiana when Ron Artest, he was at the time now meta world peace, but when he was there and he'd play the top and then he would drop, we used to call it a monster zone. So it would really become a two, three, he'd play at the top and then drop that. I liked a little bit, you know, but we don't see still a lot of zone in the NBA. I think it's pretty effective. I've wondered, my brother and I have wondered to each other, you know, what would happen if somebody would uh, commit to it, say at the NBA level, like Jim Beheim does at the college level and just say, we're going to play it 48 minutes. There's a guy here in Orlando at Rollins College who's been here like 40 years, Tom Klusman. And a few years back, Tom went to play an all zone and he plays all the zones we were just talking about, but he plays all zone. He doesn't play any man to man. So he's become a big advocate of the zone. And when I was here in Orlando, I remember going to lunch with him one day and he, you know, he's saying, I don't understand why you guys don't play more zone. And as we got talking, he goes, and when you do play zone, you know, as soon as somebody hits a three, you're out of the zone, but they can hit three straight threes against your man-to-man and you don't get out of the man-to-man. Like what's going on? And I said, well, I think that's an honest case. It it comes down to what you believe in. And so I believe in man-to-man defense. And so when we're not being effective, my thing is we need to do it better or harder, right? Or maybe make some adjustment. I don't really believe in the zone. I'll throw it out there. And when it doesn't work, I'm getting out of it because I didn't believe in it to begin with, whereas Tom Klusman totally believes in it. And so if it doesn't go in, yeah, he might switch zones and give you a different look, but he's probably most of the time going to do what I do with man to man. We need to play it better. We need to play it harder. We got to close out harder. We got to do all of that. You know, so we all have stuff that we'll try, but then we've got a core of things that we really believe in. That's offensively and defensively. And we're going to stick with those things. I think most coaches are like that. At number two, by way of some Ted Lasso quotes, we stumbled into an important conversation with Boston Celtics president of basketball operations, Brad Stevens, about perspective and mental health for athletes and coaches. Coach, we were talking a little bit beforehand. We're all fans of the show, uh, Ted Lasso. So we came up with three Ted Lasso quotes here for you. And so we'd like to have you start one, sub one, and and sit one as far as maybe your first, second, third favorites, and we can uh, maybe discuss why from there. So quote number one from Ted Lasso is, be curious, not judgmental. Quote number two is, you know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? It's got a 10 second memory. Be a goldfish. And quote number three is, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. Am I doing it by my reaction to those quotes or what I think <laughs> is applicable to basketball? Most probably applicable. applicable. Yeah. I mean, I, I was trying to, I, I've watched every episode. I love it. I think it's awesome. And I love the mental health focus in this second season. It's so on point with so many things in that show, but these quotes are just three of them, right? I would say... The be curious, not judgmental. I mean, they're all three really good. Yeah. I would probably say that one. The horse, I would say, is probably third, but I think it's like (laughs) really good too. I'd say be curious, not judgmental. And then what was the second one? Be a goldfish, 10 second memory. Oh, yeah. yeah, The goldfish one I love, especially when you're in sports. I've got a 15 year old and a 12 year old. And, you know, and that kind of goes back to you're always worried about, what somebody says about you or what the instant feedback we're getting in the social media era, or you miss a shot and you're not confident and you don't let the next one fly. Like, I love that. Like, let it go. Have shot amnesia. Let that thing go. That's what I would start. Be curious, not judgmental. I think that the curious part's great, but the not judgmental part is like super important. And then you know, I like the horse one because I do think that it's, you know, you have to become comfortable being uncomfortable, but I'd probably play them some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Them all the time. <laughs> For yeah. sure. We don't sit anybody all the time. Everybody in the NBA gets their opportunity at some point. For sure. Coach, if I could just circle back to the thing you said, but just about how the second season of Ted Lasso is really focused a lot on mental health mm-hmm. and things like that. And just from your point of view, you know, dealing with the professionals and the pressure and all of that, just how 
you would try to assist or help in those areas so that you know players felt like they were making progress there as well? Well, we have our you know kind of processes in place and you know the people that we work with that really focus on the wellness and, and mental health areas. We're very in tune and alert to the fact that you know the onset of depression and anxiety often happens between 18 and 24. And with the amount of scrutiny and the amount of praise and the amount of feedback that doesn't matter that we all get in this kind of world and the players get 10 times more than anybody else, you just want to hopefully provide an environment, provide a place where people understand, like have the perspective on what's important and what's not. And hopefully aren't affected by, again, the negativity or the overpraising. But the reality is, regardless, is you're still going to have the ups and downs and go through the ups and downs, whether you're a 44-year-old coach or whether you're a 19-year-old player. And you have to be able to navigate those. And it's not easy. You know, everybody has their own experiences and everybody's their own person. And we want to very much normalize the idea that working on yourself, working on your own mental state, your own mindset is just as important as getting in the weight room and working on your strength, right? And I think that that is something that is really important. Again, I I didn't love the meetings that I was a part of in the corporate world, but I did love the fact that I worked on two drugs, Prozac, which was an antidepressant, and Zyprexa, which was bipolar medication that really taught me a lot about mental health in the late nineties or early two thousands when, you know, it was still tough at out time, Yeah, you know, and I just think it was coaches or people in the front office or training staffs or whatever. Our first thought should not be, well, that person's not tough enough or that person's not, you know, isn't here today. It's like, why? Like, can we help? Is there something we can do to help? How do we, you know, kind of be proactive about that? And coach, sorry, just because I think this is an important subject too. How about for coaches as well and people on your staff sort of self-care throughout the course of a season, whether it was back in the college level or the professional level? Well, first of all, you know, we've been through, you know, the last couple of years, I think have challenged everybody, right? Yeah. Whether just because the the pain in, in the world, the pain and in all of our communities. And then, you know, I think that on top of that, trying to do a job that is really difficult and try to do it really well. And so I think it's important for coaches to not only take time to focus on themselves and make sure that they are, you know, appropriately in tune to that, but also like we all grew up in this culture of you get into the office at 6 a.m., you leave at 2 a.m., you know, you're watching film till your eyes are dry. And I just think that there's a diminishing point of returns in the season. And we land at 3 a.m. half the time, right? Or we, you know, very rarely are getting regular good sleep. Very rarely do you have a homestand. So it's already taking a toll on your mind and body. And my suggestion to anybody is do something else. Find areas of the day to do something else. Obviously, you want to work out, but take time to focus your mind elsewhere. Like, you know, take 30 minutes or take an hour and go for a walk and listen to a podcast that has nothing to do, no offense, with basketball, right? <laughs> None taken. And I just think that those things are helpful. I tell the story all the time. That we lost a game. I think we were on a couple game losing streak and we headed out to play the Warriors. And the Warriors were the Warriors then. It was like, you know, they were on their run. Yeah. And so we land in Golden State and typically I would watch a couple of more games and work on my own game sheet, get prepared and probably not talk to anybody that night and probably, you know, go to sleep whenever I went to sleep, order in food, you know, all those things. And, you know, I just called Jamie Young, who was an assistant coach and Micah Shrewsbury, who again, the head coach at Penn State. And I said, let's get out of here. And so we rented bikes and we rode across the Golden Gate Bridge. And then we won the next night, you know, like me watching Steph Curry run off the screen and shoot a crazy shot and losing any more sleep over that was not going to do us any good. I knew that he was going to go for 30 points, 20 of which would be on sports center and would be like miraculous points, but I knew we were going to make it hard. 
we had played them a bunch. I watched them every night, just like everyone else did. So I didn't need to watch them. And I think that was just a great reminder that, hey, sometimes it's more about clearing your own mind. You know, we want our players to play with a clear mind. You should have a clear mind as a coach too. And at number one this year, 11-time NCAA champion and Hall of Fame head coach of the UConn women's basketball program, Gino Oriema. In this start-sub sit, we broke down directional defenses and whether Coach Oriema prefer to force to a weak hand, middle, or baseline, or toss the entire question out the window. Coach, these uh, the theme of this one is directional defensive schemes. So start-sub sit, Forcing middle, no middle, or weaking, or always forcing to a weak hand? Yeah. You know what? I hate all three of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I guess you got to pick one of them, but I hate all three of them. <laughs> Which ones do you hate the least? <laughs> well, let, let, me tell you, let me tell you why. I never thought of it this way, but let me tell you why. So for 100 years then, you know, you were told this. Force the guys to the middle. Don't give up baseline, right? Mm-hmm. Force the guys to the middle, especially if you got a good big man in there that can just protect the rim, right? Force mm-hmm. the guys to the middle. Then, you know, guards got really, really good. You got a lot of three-point shooters. So now keep the ball out of the middle so that the guy has less options for kickouts and they can't get in the lane and screw up your defense. Then it became force everything to the baseline. And that seems to be the prevailing thought now force everything to the baseline, and then rotate. Okay. And force everybody to their weak hand. So it doesn't matter. That guy's right-handed, make them go left-hand, no matter where they are on the floor. So those are all the things you talk about, right? Right. Yes. Okay. Here's what I found. You want to force a guy to go left, let's say, they're right-handed. That's probably the best option that you have. Provided your kids can remember that we're forcing them left every single play, every single spot on the floor that they're at. Mm-hmm. So that means sometimes you're going to give up middle. Sometimes you force them baseline. So it's changing all the time, correct? Unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Okay. So it's changing all the time. So I think that one is, you know, if that's, that's the way you're going to go, you have to spend a lot of time with your guys understanding that, you know, sometimes it's middle. You got to, how do we rotate when a guy goes middle? How do we rotate when the guy goes baseline? Right. I'm sure it's easier than that, but that would be my thing. So here's what I heard. You know, the guy used to be the assistant for the Spurs at Trey. Yep. Messina. Messina. Yeah. Okay. Here's what I heard him say. He said, the thing that I learned going in the NBA is if you say to your guard, listen, force this guy baseline or force this guy middle. The guy will be at the rim before you even know what the hell happened. <laughs> yeah. Because guys, are, they're so fast, they're so quick, that the minute you give them an angle, they're gone. Right. So yeah. what I've learned coaching my team is if you've got tremendously quick defenders, it doesn't really matter what the hell you're doing offensively or defense. It's going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. It's going to work. So what I'm coming to believe now is this. You remember when Princeton, when Pete Carrillo was at Princeton? Mm -hmm. How come nobody could dribble into the lane? How come every every shot that they gave up was a jump shot with a hand in their face? And that didn't matter if they were playing UCLA or they were playing Penn. It didn't matter. Yeah. So the philosophy was, listen, dude, keep your guy in front of you. I don't give a damn what you have to do. Keep them in front of you. So maybe there's no such thing as force them right, force them left. Just keep them in front of you the best you can. So then from our trio here, you're sitting all of these and you're going to start playing straight up, basically? Playing straight up and get help at the elbows. Okay. Okay. So maybe in essence, you are forcing middle. So because in women's basketball, for instance, my guards are not 6'7", 6'8". So if I rotate a guard down to rebound because I forced baseline, now I got a 5'7 kid stuck on a 6'3 kid. Right. So I would say keep them in front, start, sub, force middle, sit, force everybody to their weekend. Okay. 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 <laughs> now, listen, listen. Having said that, at the end of a shot clock, 
whoever's in that ball screen, we're forcing them to their weekend. And I think that was my follow-up is just, you're kind of hitting on a theme of simplicity versus, I guess, complexity in a defensive scheme and how much you prefer yes. to keep things simple and have them light on their feet. Yes. And you know what else I prefer on ball screens anymore? All five guys switching. I don't care what mistakes they make. I don't care. All five guys switching. And number two, trapping every ball screen. And three, against some teams, hard hedging every ball screen. I don't care what. And why is that, coach? Because the guards just want to turn the corner and get downhill. So if you come out and you slow them down just a little bit. Yeah. Now, here's the problem with that. Your big guys are going to foul out if they're not any good. So you right. can only do that when your big men are mobile. Well, sure, my yeah. thing then is if your big men are mobile, why not just switch and get it over with? To close the year, we end with a clip about the opportunities as a coach to impact young people, no matter what level, offensive scheme, or whether you're actually zoning, peel switching, or tagging up this year. Here's Jeff Van Gundy on the privilege of coaching. As I've gotten older, I wish I had a greater appreciation when I was younger for just the privilege it is to coach. And I don't care what level that is, but to have an opportunity to lead people, hopefully in a positive way, not only for their own careers, you know, we, we get jaded, you know, a career is, a, you know, is a short time for a player, but, you know, I was a high school coach, you know, I love that I still am in contact with six or seven of those 12 guys that I coached in high school way, way back. And the same with some of the guys I've coached in the NBA. Like, you're not close with everybody, but, you know, some you have just a a bond with. So I guess I wish I would have been more appreciative of that and not just be as focused on if we won or lost. Thank you so much for listening this year. Have a great week coaching. And we'll see you in 2022 on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.